0: Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House, who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And today we are kicking off our Women's History Month series on incredible women we want to highlight. The first woman we're highlighting is Monica Ramirez. She's an activist, attorney, and the founder of the nonprofit Justice for Migrant Women. She's a co-founder of the Latinx House and the founding principal of Puede, amongst other things, and being recently named to the Time 100 Next Gen List. But before we get to Monica, I know the moms on the podcast have something they want to get off their chest. Well, the Chicago kids, they are officially
1: back to school this week, and it's at least the K through fifth graders, and the Chicago public school system is the third largest in the country, and it has been a source of public debate for months now. The kids have been out of school for an official year. This month. And so watching my two little girls head back to school in a hybrid manner for one and full time for the other has me concerned and hopeful and feeling a lot of pressure to make sure that we get this right for them.
2: Well, I can't believe that it's been a year since our kids have been out of school in many of our schools in California. But we're not as close. I will say, though, that you can see that we're getting there. And I think when you become a mom, when I became a mom, I realized just how much unpaid labor women do every day who are moms. And I think, you know, we know that the burden of um, this pandemic has felt largely, to women. And so um, we are not back. We are uh, getting some options circulated about maybe two days a week, but we need to work towards getting every single child back to school.
1: That is so true. Well, speaking of which, I'm sure that you all have heard it, but my kids are most certainly in the background and they are not using their inside voices. <laughs> so, <laughs> speaking, uh, you know, mom's really bearing the brunt of this pandemic year.
0: Well, we promised you guys that we would always keep it real. So you're going to get all the noises and background noises as well. And it's funny because we recorded our interview with our next guest, Monica Ramirez, earlier, and she was telling us that her own child was you know, trying to get in the room. So <laughs> there's a lot going on for all of us today, but so much to talk about with Monica. She's such an impressive woman, and I know that you'll be so inspired by her. So let's get right to it. Monica Ramirez is an activist, attorney, and the founder of the nonprofit Justice for Migrant Women, co-founder of the Latinx House, and founding principal of She Se Puede. For over two decades, she has fought for the civil and human rights of women, children, workers, Latinos, and immigrants. We are so excited to have you here with us today, Monica. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And congratulations, you were just named one of the Time 100 Next emerging leaders from around the world who are shaping the future and defining the next generation of leadership. A huge honor. And we want to talk to you about many of your accomplishments today. But first, we'd love to start by asking you if you could share a bit about your upbringing and how that influenced your life's purpose.
3: Yeah, so, you know, I'm so glad you start there because I feel like oftentimes people jump into sort of where I went to school and, you know, my career and not my background. And that's actually why I do what I do in the world. So, um, you know, I come from a migrant farm worker family. My family used to travel the country picking the fruits and vegetables that we eat. And I'm extraordinarily fortunate because there were these two farmers who decided to help my family, my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family. And because of those two farmers, my family was able to bre- break the migrant cycle. And so I was able to grow up in Ohio year round. So I grew up in a rural community, um, but from the farm worker community and um, had an understanding of the farm worker struggle because of my family and because of my parents. My parents wanted to make sure that we never forgot where we came from. And so they would often talk to us about what it was like to work in the fields and live in those camps and things of that nature. So. I learned as a little girl about inequities that exist in our country and was able to um, understand because of my parents that we had to do something about it. So really, it's it's my family's background and the teachings of my parents that has led me to my life's work. What sparked your passion for
1: working with migrant women and eventually founding Justice for Migrant Women?
3: Well, I became really curious about why migrant women weren't being helped. Um, When I was 18, I got a job as a summer secretary at this legal services organization that was based in my town. Uh, They didn't want to hire me because I was not a law student and I didn't speak Spanish at the time, but anyway, I, I bothered them enough until they finally had no choice and they (laughs) let me come on as a secretary and I answered the phone one day and a woman needed help and it was before we understood what human trafficking was but basically she was the victim of human trafficking but she was a woman and there aren't very many women who work in agriculture and because this organization has very limited resources they basically decided that they couldn't help her because her case wasn't one that would benefit the majority of the population so you know, as an 18-year-old, I became very curious about why we couldn't help women, and um, started asking those questions and kind of doing research, and quickly figured out that farmworker women weren't being counted as workers. Um, a lot of times, women um, are are considered family uh, migrants instead of economic migrants, and so just over the years, started doing more research and and just determined that the at the time when I was about ready to graduate from law school. But there was no project in the entire country that was focused on the needs of farmworker women, even though there were so many needs. And so um, it was the understanding that there was a huge gap and a huge need um, that drove me to create the proposal uh, to to start the first legal project in the nation for farmworker women. Um, I wrote that when I was a second year law student and was able to get funding when I was a third year law student before I graduated.
0: Well, let's stay on the topic of women because you're actually the first in our series of women that we're highlighting for Women's History Month. And so excited to kick it off with you because you've been a a very prolific coalition builder for women. I wanna highlight for our listeners some of the things you've done. You wrote the Dear Sisters open letter to the women of Hollywood from farmworker women that sparked the Time's Up movement. And you organized the Querida Familia letter that appeared in the New York Times following the El Paso shooting and ICE raids. Are we as women in a unique time to build coalitions in support of these movements? And if so, why?
3: You know, I think that as women, we naturally build coalitions. We're, we're constantly creating community. You know, I mean, we are at the center of our families. We're at the center of our communities. Um, and by extension, then able to create, I think, uh, easily these kinds of larger coalitions. And I think the difference is that people didn't see it before, people didn't value it before Um, and people didn't take them seriously before. And I think what's different about this moment is that the breakthroughs that we have been able to make collectively have been the kind of breakthroughs that people can't look away from and they're the kind of breakthroughs that people can't diminish. Like we are literally changing our communities and changing our world because of the kinds of bonds that we've created and because we're refusing to let people tell us that when we link our arms, that isn't powerful and that doesn't result in change because we know that's not true. So I I would say we're not better positioned necessarily. I think it's what we've always done. I think it's just that the world is finally taking notice. And you're
1: right, women are just such natural leaders in our communities and in our families, to your point. But as a woman starting out who has a passion for a specific topic, what's a starting point for someone listening to build a coalition or to start a movement?
3: Well, first, I would say, take that pressure off of yourself, because, (laughs) you know, I didn't set out to start a movement or to Start an organization, or or even to start a coalition. You know, I I set out to work on things I care about and to address injustices that I saw in the world. And for someone who's thinking about wanting to get engaged, I'd say just start where your heart is and start with what you care about. And you know, then maybe bring along a couple of friends, maybe you bring along a couple of family members, and and that's how you start to build a coalition. And and maybe that turns into a movement. But I think we have to take the pressure off of ourselves because I, I, I think right now, a lot of people talk about everything as a movement and not everything is a movement. And every little thing that we do matters and adds up and over time can result in what is monumental change. So I would say just reflect on what you care about and get started.
1: I love that. And as we talk about things that we start, in 2020, you launched the Latinx House. And I am sure that you did not anticipate launching it during a global pandemic. But I'm curious as to learn more about it and how you've shifted in the midst of a pandemic.
3: We certainly did not. (laughs) (laughs) We actually launched right before everything started closing down, you know? And um, so the Latinx house, for those who might be unfamiliar, is a space and a place for people who care about the Latinx community. It was intended to celebrate the contributions of the Latinx community in entertainment, as well as in politics and organizing. Um, And the idea was to bring people together in person so that we could learn from each other and, and talk to each other and just be in community with one another. Um, I think in large part, you know, I I talked about the letter, the Querida Familia letter, and we'd received emails from people around the country in response to that letter. And people said things like, they, they felt like they were in a desert without any water. You know, they were just talking about the immense isolation they were feeling. So the Latinx house was in part a response to that in terms of trying to bring people together. And we did that when we launched at Sundance Film Festival and it was incredible. And it was about taking, taking up space in a place that wasn't built for us and had not been opened up to us before. Um, and it was a, an amazing start. And then the pandemic happened and all the, the rest of the plans that we had for the rest of the year shifted. And, you know, um, fortunately we just ha- we just moved quickly to, to try to figure out how to stay uh, present online and how to talk about things that we still cared about. Um, and lift up the contributions of the Latinx community, but just in a different format. And certainly we're eager to, to get back to a place like I think all of us are, where we can be in person again. But in the meantime, we've been really um, lucky that, that people from our community have wanted to come on to our Instagram uh, you know, platform to talk about their new shows or to talk about you know anti-Blackness or to talk about the essential workers and frontline workers who need help. Um, and have been you know, doing a lot of important work throughout the pandemic. So we, you know, we try to make sure that the work that we're doing through our platforms is both timely and relevant. Um, and it is also our goal to make sure that when people come to the house, wherever it is, whether it be in person or online, that they understand that our initiative isn't just to talk, but to do. And we want people to know that they can and they should take action. So we try to provide people with information about how they can get involved.
1: I love that. And as we're starting to see the world open up um, slowly, but surely, and with the progress that we've seen with the vaccine, I wonder in 2021, do you have hopes to have that physical space open to celebrate?
3: We do. We are working on some really exciting new things that I can't share yet. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you know, the thing about this pandemic, I always try to see the silver lining in everything. That is how I survive in this world and so I, I think that this pandemic has been obviously so difficult on all of us but one thing that it has given us is the opportunity to reflect and to really think a lot about our lives and how we want to be in the world and for the Latinx house it's also given us a lot of time to think about the strategy behind the work so I'm hoping that the new things that we're building will be uh, impactful and will be things that people want to be part of.
0: Let's stay on the pandemic for a second and specifically how it's affected the farm worker community because I know here in California we've now extended our vaccine eligibility to farm workers as essential workers in our state. But the rollout and the outreach is something that everyone's still trying to work out. I see you shaking your head. You're someone very involved. You've raised more than $4 million for farm workers affected by the pandemic. So talk us through not only how this community has been particularly affected, but how we can best ensure that farm workers receive vaccines, but also other support right now.
3: Yes, I'm shaking my head because... um, You know I knew at the start of the pandemic that that our community was going to be left behind you know I knew it in my heart I knew it and that's why we moved so quickly uh, to create the fund and we didn't know how much money we were going to raise and if we could raise any and we are so grateful to every single person who gave a dollar to support the fund because it all added up and four million we're at 4.1 million dollars distributed right now we're pushing to close on 5 million by the end of uh, March. Um, and, and we've distributed in addition to that 1.2 million masks to farm workers around the country. Um, but the thing is, farm workers are scared. And even if the vaccination is available to people, we did a, a national town hall a couple of weeks ago with farm workers and they said loud and clear that they don't want the vaccination. And the reason that they don't want the vaccination is because they're afraid. They're afraid that if they get the vaccination, that that will be used against them; that they'll be considered a public charge. They're afraid that if they get the vaccination, that somehow they'll be retaliated against. You know, there's so much fear, and so we need, as a community and as a country, we need to understand that just because we make something available, as you're pointing to, that doesn't mean it's accessible and it doesn't mean that people will actually be lining up to get it if we actually don't do the work to make sure that people understand what their rights are and what to do if they need help and you know and and people need a place to ask the basic questions like will they be turned into immigration if they go and they get the vaccine like we have to make sure that we're investing in that work not just in producing a vaccine for people to you know to have the opportunity to get vaccinated, that's not enough so the, so we have been saying to the the new administration and, and to really anyone who will listen you know the investment has to come in the form of resources to do the organizing, to be on the ground, to educate people in a culturally and linguistically appropriate manner about their rights and the risks and also the opportunities. And it can't be a one-time, like a PSA, you know, that maybe plays at some obscure time. Like it's got to be constant. It's got to be consistent. It's got to be from people that people trust. Um, And unfortunately, I think when it comes to community education overall on anything that's of consequence, uh, people don't invest there and that needs to change. So what the farmworker community needs right now is they need people to continue to say that they matter. They need politicians to understand that it isn't enough to say that they are essential when they've continued to be denied essential rights and benefits for more than 80 years in this country. We need people to say that they need to be prioritized for testing and for vaccinations, but we also need people to value organizing and to invest in the community education work. And we need there to be empathy. Because what people don't understand, the kinds of calls that I have and the kinds of meetings that I take with people, it's really, it really is about life or death. And we need people to be empathetic. Like these are difficult times for everyone, but when you're talking to a farm worker family who's exhausted and terrified and sick, or just lost a loved one, and they're still being treated like they are nothing and they are no one, we need people in our country to show love and to mean it and to repeat over and over and over again that this country, that we would not be who we are or where we are if it weren't for them. And so that might sound simple and that might seem insignificant, but I'll never forget one of the first town halls that we had at the beginning of the pandemic. And there was a farm worker man who unmuted himself. We did a Zoom call and he unmuted himself and he said, people understand that we matter, it, it matters. So we need to keep saying those things. And hopefully by saying over and over again that the work of farm workers matters and that their lives matter and that they need and deserve resources, hopefully that our voices together will be enough to finally make political leaders do the right thing for these community members because it is long past time.
2: Well, you bring up so many good points here, because you talked about fear. And I think that is has been such a motivating thing in politics. And, you know, we talked a little bit. I'm from Galesburg, Illinois. You grew up in Ohio. And there's a lot of fear of people and a lot of questions, right? And we saw the last administration really go after people who are actually victim of years of systemic issues. California, now that I sit here, I find it fascinating that we are so reliant on undocumented farm workers for our economy. You know, agriculture is completely reliant on, on them. How did we get here? How did so many people, you know, get here into this position where they are, you know, victims of, of a system that hasn't worked for decades?
3: Because there hasn't been the political will or the political consequences to make things different, right? So many undocumented workers are in these jobs that pay very little, that have very few benefits. And the reason that they're in those positions is because those are the jobs that many other people would never want to take because the conditions are so bad and the employers can get away with it because no one is trying to regulate them or make them do better, right? Like there is no excuse that the law hasn't gotten better for farm workers. In California, the law is actually quite good for farm workers. Uh, On the enforcement side, I can't speak to that, but, but federally, the law for farm workers is still deficient. And the reason that people are able to get away with that is because Congress has not had the political will to do the right thing. And as much as we continue to push them, they don't feel the heat, you know, and we hear over and over again that, you know, the farm lobby is, is too strong. Well, I'm sorry. There shouldn't be any lobby that is stronger than requiring people to observe basic human rights and to acknowledge the basic human dignity of people. I don't care what lobby and how much money is on the table. Like, there is a point at which we're calling on people to do what is right. And that is why we get these, why we vote political leaders in because we are calling on them to do what is right for this nation, including the poorest among us, like farm workers. So until they feel that pressure, things are going to continue to be this way. And that is why we have to continue to build power and we have to continue to organize so that they understand that they cannot take us for granted and that we will not stop moving and marching until they make the right changes.
2: Well, and you're right. The question, I guess, I think, You probably have experienced a sentiment in Ohio that I experienced in Galesburg, where people are going, oh, it's all about jobs, right? Um, and we would take those jobs. And I guess that's kind of what I've seen has prevented any of these kinds of coalitions where actually all of us want better jobs. We all want farms to be successful because we want people to be successful. And so I guess, you know, from that perspective, growing up in the Midwest, what would you say about that component to the question of we don't have enough jobs, right?
3: Well, I would say that, that the data doesn't prove that to be true. There are enough jobs and there, there are different kinds of jobs. Industries are changing, um, you know, even in the Midwest where I'm from, agriculture looks a lot different. You know, there used to be a time when a lot of the um, crops were hand-picked. Things are not being produced in the same way. So there are shifts and there are changes, but there is, there is enough work. Um, the question is, is the work being done in a way that is palatable To everyone who would and whether or not we would want to actually be employed under those conditions and you know one of the things that people say about me and my work is that um, you know i think people think that i don't try to see the other side that i'm not trying to be sympathetic to farmers and during this pandemic when we went to the state of ohio i wasn't advocating only for farm workers i was also advocating for farmers and and when I went to farmers and I said, we need, we need to work on this together. It's probably the first time in my life that I ever went to the farm bureau, but I did it because we want the same things. Farmers want to produce the crops that we're going to eat and farm workers want to be able to help bring that fruit to market. Right. But they want to be able to do it under good conditions. And just like farm workers need better conditions. Farmers also need to be paid um, the wages that they need to be able to, or the monies that they need to be able to run their farm. So I actually think that there's, we are closer, we are probably closer than we think we are on a lot of things, including, you know, employment conditions, uh, certainly on immigration. Like there are many topics that I think we actually are a lot closer, but the problem is that, we're not having the kinds of conversations that we need to have you know you know being from the midwest when you come from a small town you talk to all your neighbors because they're the only people you have to talk to when you're from those small towns and you know but but even if you don't think the same you're at least in conversation and you can at least hear the other perspectives but unfortunately we're not having Um, the space isn't isn't available to people to be able to engage in the conversations. And so we think that we're a lot farther apart on many issues and I think we really are. So that is something that needs to happen. We need to create more space for people to have conversations so that we can then figure out where there's agreement and how we can start moving forward in the places where where we do have agreement. And I think that if we were to do that, we would be able to see significant change on a lot of different issues, including on the economy.
1: I agree. We talk a lot on this podcast about what brings us together is much more than what divides us. But I want to go back to um, something that we were talking about a little bit ago, and that's the fear that exists around the vaccine, because I can hear it in your voice how deeply this impacts you personally. And I know that so many undocumented people out there share that same fear. And as we hear politicians talking about, Um, herd immunity and how we get to herd immunity. What's the risk that we're running if people are too scared to actually go get their vaccinations?
3: Well, I mean, I think the risk that we're running is that this country is willing to make a decision about a strategy that is essentially going to say that people, certain people's lives don't matter as much. So if our country believes that the herd mentality will get us to immunity, that means investing in the communities that are on the margins that are fearful so that everyone can be brought in from the sidelines, right? But if we don't do that, then that means that we are willing to essentially create a situation in which there will be sacrificial lambs. And so the, the fear and the sadness that you hear is because people don't realize so many farm workers have died. You know, people don't know that are entire camps that were infected, there were children that were infected. You know, people don't receive the, the calls and the inquiries that, that we receive and don't totally understand the human suffering that, that has been felt by so many people. And so when I think about the vaccine and the fact that people are too afraid to get it, in my mind, I just keep thinking, how many more people will die?
2: You know, it's, um, you're right. And you've, you know, seen the stories firsthand. And um, I think a lot of people, again, back to that fear, think if we're vaccinating, you know, one group first before another, you know, how are we making these priorities? I think that that idea of we're all in it together, we can be a motivating, but we're not all in it together. We all want to save the world, right? And sometimes, some days, it feels like the world is just kind of crumbling around us. What in your eyes would be the world as it should be? And how can we bring more people together so that we can get there instead of letting this fear divide us and stop us from using science to get this vaccine in the right people's arms, etc.
3: I mean, I think that getting to the place that is sort of the utopia or the world that we all want and deserve is getting to a place where a man like that farm worker man who stood up in that town hall and said we, that he mattered, like that we all really feel that, that we all feel that, not just some that we all feel that and that that is reflected in the laws of this country, that is reflected in the way that institutions work and run, that's reflected in the way that we treat people every day. Like that's that's what I think it means to really see um, a better future for all of us. And, you know, I've been ta- thinking a lot about this lately. It's kind of, maybe sounds kind of strange, but people talk people talk a lot about my work in different ways. And I'm always like, hmm, is that what my work means? And um, one one of the things that people often say is that I fight for equality, I fight for equity, and I do fight for those things. But I've been asking myself lately, is that enough? Because the truth is, we're not fighting only for equity or equality, we're fighting for liberation. And if all we're fighting for is equity or equality under the law, and the law, then the laws are unjust sometimes. And that means that we're not fighting for enough, right? And so in my dream world, it's one where where we all do have enough and that where we understand that we are enough and that um, that we can move in this world and feel as though what we have to say and what we think really matters and that people are going to take it seriously. And when we ask for what we need, people are going to act on it. That's the, that's the world I'm trying to build.
0: You're such a heart centered leader. And I know everyone listening right now has experienced that with us today what is the legacy that you want to leave in closing? You know, you, you do so much important work, but if you were to point to what it is that you want to change in this world in your lifetime, what would that be? That's
3: a major question. Um, you know, I think that two things that matter a lot to me about my work are, you know, there's this myth that we're told that when you grow up, you know, you're supposed to look for the door, that door of opportunity. You're supposed to find that door of opportunity. And the truth is that that door doesn't exist for all of us. So I think that when people consider my work and my legacy, that they will understand that I was a person who created doors where they didn't exist. And that we, that we were brave enough to open those doors and walk through them and bring other people with us. And the other thing, you know, I've, I'm, fairly young and started my work young, uh, you know, as a teenager um, working for my community and in my community and have been told a lot that I needed to wait my turn. And I hope that the one of the legacies that I leave with my work is that people will understand that I didn't accept that we have to wait our turn to do good and for this world. And I hope that both not feeling like we have to wait to do good and understanding that sometimes we just have to create opportunities where they don't exist. I hope that those two teachings from, from my work will be things that will help other people understand that no matter where they're from and no matter you know how they grew up, that, that they can do anything they wanna do. And if it's for the right reasons, then that's the only thing that they need to be assured of and it will turn out right.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your heart with us today, Monica. It was such an honor to have you on Pod as a Woman. Thank you for being with us, Monica.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: That was such a meaningful conversation with Monica and in full disclosure, she's a a dear friend of mine, but I just appreciate her perspective and her candidness around these issues. And I, I sincerely hope that the folks in charge are listening to what she's saying about vaccine rollout and addressing these very real fears in the farm worker community.
1: And you can tell she genuinely cares. This is her backbone. It's part of who she is as a human being. And for her to just be able to speak so passionately and eloquently about the effects that this pandemic has had on the migrant worker population, it really hits home for me and makes me think about the situation from such a different perspective. So I appreciate her bringing that to the table.
2: And I think that the core of we are humans and um, most of us just want the same thing. It's like we want to be heard and valued. And so getting back to that is so important. I did see that the White House is now saying that they're going to be vaccinating 300 million Americans by May, which is earlier than. Any other timeline, um, which should put us on a route in which we can vaccinate every single American and then try to come together and solve
1: global challenges, I pray. Let us hope. And as we shift to our POTUS of the week, it goes to Sansaria Ann Berry, who became the first Black woman serving as the 35th Secretary of the Senate. Congratulations to her as she starts her tenure.
2: And our shout out this week goes to Chloe Zhao, who became the first Asian woman to win the Golden Globes for best director. Hopefully there are a lot more women directing soon.
0: Next week, we'll go into our second of our series for Women's History Month. So if you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And have a great week until then.